you're brainwashed in becoming a warrior. That's how you survive. Actually, you become a team a teamwork, uh, and you, that's how you you survive in the military. But they don't train you how to leave that behind. It becomes such a part of you when you come back to civilian life. Uh, so many of uh, my brothers were in firefights one day, next day they were home. How do you s- separate that? And that was you. And that was me. Ed Hellrigel came home from Vietnam to a world he did not know, and a world that didn't know him. It was for Ed, like so many other Vietnam vets, an adjustment bordering on impossible. He turned to the bottle to escape, couldn't land a job, was filled with anger. He couldn't manage what he describes as the monster inside me. So Ed went back for another tour in the battlefields of Vietnam, back to combat back to his brothers. Whatever the horrors it held, it was at least a world he understood. Ed survived that world, but not without significant consequence. It's taken him decades to understand post-traumatic stress, something he didn't realize he had. Today, Ed Hellrigel, who a lifetime ago thought of becoming a priest, speaks of his warrior life in deeply thoughtful philosophical terms. It's been a long journey with a bumpy beginning. Being a real skinny, white kid, uh, I had to fight, go to school, fight to go to class, and uh, go home. And uh, finally, uh, one day, uh, someone pulled a knife on me, and I said, no more. Uh, I'm not going to do this. So I quit going to school. And they said, okay, if you uh, behave yourself in six months, you can come back. I says, okay. So in six months, I went back, and they said, no, we don't want you. Why is that? Uh, they never said. Uh, they said, no, we're not going to let you back in. Uh, we're going to send you to this special uh, high school for dropouts. And so on the way home, I walked past a recruiting st- uh, office, and about half a block later, for some reason, I just turned around, walked back, and walked in, says, I want to join. <laughs> yeah. What, was in, not, what inspired that? Was that just a spur of the moment thing? It was, it was just a spur of the moment. Uh, it was just uh, an inspiration, I guess, or something. I just turned around, walked in, and volunteered for airborne infantry in Vietnam. Did you know what you were getting into? No, actually, I didn't. But uh, growing up on the uh, street in the area where I was at, it was all low income. I knew if I stayed there, I was going to be like one, some of my friends, either become a police officer or go to jail or get seriously injured or killed. Did you entertain the notion of becoming a priest at one point in time? Yes, I did, actually. Uh, I w- went to uh, DePaul Academy for a year. Uh, growing up, I was an altar boy in the choir, very uh, involved in the Catholic Church, and I wanted to become a priest. So I went to DePaul Academy for a year until I uh, figured out that I did not like Latin. And uh, I couldn't pick that up no matter what I did. And also at the same time, I became aware of girls. So I was like, okay, no. It's a Uh, moment of awareness that many young men experience. Yeah, Yeah. so when I got kicked out of DePaul Academy for failing Latin, because it was mandatory after the first year. That's when I went to uh, Waller High School. 
which was a public high school in the area at the time. Okay, so you walk into the recruiting office and you say, I want to sign up. I want to be uh, airborne infantry. Yes. And what does the recruiter say? He oh, said, he was, did he, he say, you, you know where you're going to go? Do you, uh, do you he, know where you want to go? Uh, no, actually, I, I remember he had a big smile on his face. It was like, okay, I got me one. Because <laughs> they had to meet their quotas and that. And he, he says, okay, are you sure? I said, yes, I am. Okay, the time frame on this is 1966. Yes. And you are, at the time, 17 years old. 17 years so old. So you needed parents' permission to sign up. Yes. And you got that. Yes. And uh, my parents were divorced, so I, we were, I was living with my mother, and I told her, I said, I, I, I joined up. Can you please sign? Did you say to the recruiter, I want to go to Vietnam? Yes. You did? Yes, I did. And did he have a smile on his face? That oh, continued? yeah. All right. And... and does a 17-year-old who's not been in any form of combat, uh, other than having a knife pulled on you at some point in time, uh, yeah. do you know what you're getting at? Do you have any notion at all of what you're about to face? No, you don't, uh, because everything in your mind is what you've seen on TV. You know, uh, the John Wayne movies, the Cary Grant movies, all those type of things. And so uh, you go in with an uh, idea of uh, uh, glory and honor and you know, like the movies were. Uh, of course, reality is totally different <laughs> than what you see on TV. All right, you get on a, a, a boat, and you're on your way over to Vietnam. Well, first of all, you go through basic. Yes. And they, the, your MOS is going to be, you're going to be a truck driver. The Army wants you to be a truck driver. Yes. I volunteered for Airborne Infantry, and they wanted to make me a truck driver. And I suppose that did not appeal to you. No, it didn't, because I knew since I had volunteered for Vietnam, no matter what my uh, MOS was going to be, I was going to Vietnam, and I had visions of a truck driver going down the roads hitting a mine, and I did not want to be part of that scenario, because uh, you're just sitting behind a wheel, you have no way to defend yourself, you're just blindly going down a road. So how did you get out of that assignment? Well, we, uh, I became friends with this one man, uh, one friend, a guy at uh, truck driver's school, and neither one of us wanted to be, go in Vietnam as a truck driver, so we purposely failed our test. Matter of fact, I turned the Jeep over on its side. And, well, that's a good way to fail a test. <laughs> and he fa purposely failed his written test. And so uh, they said, okay, you're not going to be a truck driver. I said, thank you. <laughs> you, you didn't get hurt, did you? No, no. We were only probably going a couple miles an hour, but it's one of those where you're trying to uh, teach you how to go off train. Oh, all right. Uh, going up a side of a hill. <laughs> so I purposely oh, yeah. turned it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you definitely did want to do that. Right. So then the Army gives you a choice. Yes. Uh, of what, what happened then? Uh, they gave us a choice, both of us a choice, of being a lineman or a cook. Well, I, uh, I didn't want to be a lineman sitting on top of a telephone pole stringing po lines uh, or a communication specialist. So uh, my friend and I both volunteered to become a cook. So we went to Fort Dix, New Jersey for eight weeks of cook school. You learned how to cook. Yes. And actually. then you went to Vietnam. Yes. We, uh, as a cook. Yes, as a cook. I went to Vietnam as a cook. Uh, they shipped me to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, they were going to ship us all as a whole unit on a ship uh, 
the USS Upshur. Uh, I joined the uh, 3rd Brigade of the 1st of the 14th Infantry, 4th Infantry Division at Fort Lewis. So you're on the Upshur, and that takes a while to get over to Southeast Asia. Oh, yes, about and, a three-week trial. And it's uh, a, long, trip. a long trip. And so during that time, uh, you're on some difficult seas, but you, you, you form really strong bonds with the other guys who are on that ship. Yes, for some reason, I became very close with all the guys in Delta Company. Uh, my battalion, and uh, I was cooking on ship, uh, worked in the galley, and uh, I ended up, uh, of course, uh, slipping them with ex- little extras here and there in the kitchen and that. Yeah, you were a favorite, weren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's probably how I became very good friends with them. <laughs> <laughs> right. I had the keys to the galley. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. And at that age, everybody is always... Always hungry, all the time. For sure. You had a boundless pit. So we became very good friends. And so for three weeks, uh, we bonded really close. We ended up landing in Da Nang, uh, Vietnam. And that was an experience. Everybody thought, okay, we'll just go pull up to a dock and put the game plank down like we got onto the ship, and you get off. No, they threw those ropes down the sides of the ship. And you had to take your duffel bag and climb down these cargo nets down to a landing craft, and they took you to shore. And that, my legs were shaking a little bit on that one. That was about a 40-foot drop. <laughs> Welcome to Vietnam. Yes, exactly. So when you're, when you're on the ground in Vietnam, then how does life begin for you? Are you... Uh cooking for the troops then? Uh, yes, actually what we did is uh, they shipped us to Chu Lai. Uh, I remember Hill 54 is uh, where we met the uh, unit uh, at. And I became a cook on the, at the, uh, on the Hill 54, which was the battalion area. And that's where I stood for about two months as a cook. I did something, must have been doing something right, because they put me in charge of the officer's mess. So. I spent about a month and a half serving the officers. They brought them their trays and all that. Were you a good cook? Actually, I was. I had a knack for it for some reason. Everybody loved my cooking. Even though I enjoyed cooking, it wasn't for me. While I was in the back cooking, uh, Delta County got in a number of firefights and uh, a couple wounded, a couple of unfortunate KIA killed. Every time that happened, I'd go down to the dumps because I wanted to be out there with them. I, I felt that I was betraying them because I was safe in the rear and they were out there taking chances for me. And it just uh, went against the grain for me to be like that. You wanted to be there for them? Yes. With your guys? I wanted to be with my friends out in the field. And That's how did, what I signed for. That eventually happened, but you had to have a meeting with the colonel in order for that to come forward. So yes. What, how did that play out? Well, what happened is uh, they had been in a real bad firefight and uh, had several casualties. Uh, I don't remember what kind. So I was feeling really down. I always had a smile on my face. I guess I didn't that day. And the colonel came in for his food, and he, he noticed, and he, he asked me what was wrong. And I told him, I said, Delta Cummings was just in a bad firefight. And I said, I told him my story. I volunteered to be out in the field with these guys, and they made me a cook. And I says, I just hate being back here. Well, they're taking chances. They're fighting for me. 
and I don't like that. I want to be out there with them. He says, are you sure you want to go out there? You know what you're getting into. And I said, yes, that's what I wanted. He says, okay, no problem, I'll fix it up for you. 20 minutes later, I had orders to pack up. I was going to the field. He had changed my MOS from uh, being a cook to a loving Bravo. A typical reaction to that, knowing that you're going to go into combat, would be, for many people, oh no. But for you, it was hallelujah. Yes. I was be very, with my guys. very happy. Yeah. Uh, I had a smile on my face. Uh, I took, I must have got all my supplies and everything within 20 minutes. And about, within 45 minutes to an hour, I was standing at the helicopter pad waiting for my ride to the field. So you leave all your cooking utensils behind. You get your rucksack, you got your weapons, and you're on your way to Delta Company. Yes, in true lie there. And then you're with a group that's kind of a rapid response team. Yes. Wherever there's trouble, they take you and they drop you guys in. Right. I called it a heavy combat unit uh, because that's what we were. Uh, later on in my adult life, I joined the uh, First of the Fourteenth Association, and someone on there had actually figured out how much combat my unit was in while I was there, and we were actually in combat 264 days out of the year. Wow. Yes. We were almost continuously in fighting somewhere. When you arrived with your guys, mm-hmm. how did they react to your presence? Uh, they said, they, they all come, you're crazy. What the heck are you doing out here? And I said, I wanted to be with you guys. You know, I just did not feel right being in the rear. And they accepted it. You know, told me I was crazy, but they accepted it. And they welcomed me in to the unit. Since you saw so much combat, can you recollect the first time you were engaged in combat? What was that like? Uh, that was a very scary, uh, and actually, uh, even though uh, in a lot of the uh, major reports and stories, the units not mentioned, but uh, we were in the Battle of Khantoum in November, uh, in uh, early December of uh, 1967, and we seen a. And Khantoum uh, is in the Central Highlands with all all mountains. And uh, we were in combat pretty much uh, off and on for about three weeks and seen a lot of casualties in that. So that was my very first one. And actually, we had a couple battles there where uh, we didn't think we were going to make it. Because uh, we always, it seemed like they always put, uh, our intelligence always said there were fewer troops against us than there in reality was. And usually we were out and gunned usually two to one or more when we went to a battle. So You, you had one operation where they dropped you at a place called uh, Hardcore? Uh, Firebase Hardcore. Firebase Hardcore. And that was Tet Offensive. That was doing Tet. All right. So that's uh, February 68. Yes. What happened is, is uh, during the Tet, the 2nd NVA Division was, uh, uh, intelligence said was going to attack the Nang. South of the Nang, there was the mountain ranges where uh, the highlands ended. And on top, they picked out a top of a hill called, and we cleared it, it was called LZ uh, Hardcore. And it was well named because uh, when we went in there, the enemy was already still on the hill. 
So we came under immediate fire. We lost a couple of choppers going in there. Matter of fact, a Chinook caught, got hit with a 50, and uh, luckily they got the fire out as he was taken out, but it, it caught fire as it was taken off. So it was, we felt we went into a very hot LZ area. And you were really outnumbered, were you not? Oh, yes. Uh, we were only a battalion at the time, and uh, we were going against a, a division of troops. I believe the division that time uh, was probably around anywhere between two to 3,000 troops. Okay, and so you're outnumbered. What do you have, 100 and some, 100 well, plus? Well, uh, a battalion is probably about four or 500 men. So, so your, your company experienced some really significant losses. Yes. You, you had like, what, 120 some guys in your company and you lost? Uh, we had about a uh, little over about 100, 120, somewhere in that range. Uh, when they, we came off of Hardcore and walked into the Lowlands, Bravo Company, walked right into that NVA division. And so we fought our way to a Bravo company, and this battle lasted a couple weeks. It felt like a week and a half, two weeks. We were pinned down so badly. We, uh, my company lost 74 men during that battle. We took cover in a, uh, a bomb crater that was there. Uh, me and one other guy on a perimeter. We were short, so short-handed, there was only two guys per, per position, and we were spread out pretty thin. And every time we were mortared, we had to crawl out towards the enemy to get out of that uh, bomb crater, because if a mortar hit the bomb crater, we would be dead. And the enemy were only 50 meters in front of us, so you had to crawl out and towards the enemy and then crawl back into your hole and hopefully not get shot <laughs> while trying to do that. But we were under constant enemy fire, and it was so bad that we laid all our ammo out, grenades, made a pack that we'd save a bullet for each one, each, each other, and we knew we were not going to survive till dawn. My platoon was down to nine men, uh, so we knew we were not going to take the next attack. The only thing that saved our butts was uh, extreme heavy artillery, air support, B-52 strikes, matter of fact, into the valley. And uh, finally, the MVA had enough. I guess those strikes really hurt them bad. And uh, next morning, we were still there. And uh, that was so scary. You were convinced that you weren't going to make it. Yes. So much so that you set aside ammunition to take each other out. Yes, we were going to shoot each other. You were going to not let the enemy take you out. Yeah. You were going to shoot each other. Yes, uh, because the enemy, we knew, did not take enlistment prisoners. And we have found some people that they had taken alive, and they were pretty badly mutilated. So there was no way we were going to be taken. So we were, we were going to go down fighting one way or the other. How, how does an 18-year-old wrap his mind around that? Uh, actually, after a while, it becomes so normal that you don't know anything else. To survive a war, I, I, people ask me, how do you survive? To survive a war, you become war. Yeah. And when you become war, you lose your humanity. And once that happens, it, you become cold, numb. Mean. Almost dead inside, so it, death is death. You've, you lived with it around you so much, uh, 
It doesn't phase you anymore. Did you did you realize that that was happening to you? Did you did you sense no. that, or you're you're just you're going through the routine day to day, and you're doing everything you can to keep yourself and your mates alive? Yes. So you're not doing any deep deep philosophical thinking about no. this is what's happening to me in the moment of battle. Actually, you don't realize that. And actually, I didn't realize I had PTSD till about 40 years later, uh, which was why I was such a heavy drinker all the time. And uh, I was uh, kind of almost suicidal in a way. Uh, I was one of these guys that took all the chances. I, li- I liked walking point. I liked uh, occasionally going into tunnels. I became an adrenaline junkie is what it is. People say, oh, I want to do yoga. I want to feel, I want to do uh, these religious uh, things. I want to be, find myself, you, how you alive were, you are. You were searching for you. Well, you never know how alive or how, what life is like until you have someone shooting at you. Yeah, you become so enlightened and you see life to what it really is. You know, you feel your inner self and all that. When you have someone shoot at you, you you become very enlightened, <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> I so. Well, apart from hardcore, you, you experienced some human wave attacks from time to time? Uh, yes. The next, uh, we were in a lot of other battles, uh, firefights in between. But uh, in May of uh, 1968, they put us on a fire base called LZ Brillo Pad. It was right by the uh, Cambodian border in Kantum province. We were right on a main MBA infiltration route, and they did not like that idea. So they sent two uh, regiments against us, reinforced regiments to attack our hill. I don't remember which regiments they were, which basically was about a couple thousand enemy troops against us, and there was only about maybe 500 troops on the, on the hill itself. And for that battle actually did last three weeks. We actually ended up having B-52s, real close artillery strikes. Matter of fact, our own artillery dropped their barrels and were doing beehive rounds against the human wave attacks. What happened is, is we were getting mortared constantly every day, and uh, we were receiving about three to four hundred rounds of incoming daily. And then at night, is this around the clock, or is it? Uh, yeah. Uh, what happened is, is during the night they tried to probe our uh, area, our hill, and unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, it was a machine gunner at the time. I was in the command bunker for the third platoon. And we were right on the main finger of land coming right into our fire base, which was the easiest route. So they uh, decided they wanted this hill, and they launched a, a ground attack against us, a human wave attack. And we had a brand-new lieutenant. He um, was panicking a little bit with the attack, and uh, we were firing out of the bunker window. And he said, don't stop firing. No matter what you do, don't stop firing. Well, I had close to 5,000 rounds of ammunition in the bunker for my machine gun. And uh, I just, okay, no problem. I can do that. And so I just started spraying uh, left and right, up and down. It was such a hard attack, and they got very close because I got blown out of the window four times with uh, shape charges of rocket, uh, B-50 to B-40 rockets. I'm not sure what they were. And one time I got knocked out of the uh, window with a flame th- from a flamethrower they had. At that time, uh, they had us put on a uh, gas mask because they, we were using a CS gas on a hill because the, the, troop, the enemy troops didn't have gas masks. 
So CS, to help, CS is for what? Uh, it's like tear gas, except it's the military version, so it's extremely strong. Now, you would definitely start, uh, eyes would be watering, you'd be swollen up. If uh, you got a good whiff of it, you'd be incapacitated. When you say window, what are you in when you're getting... Well, uh, we had bunkers, and uh, since we were getting mortared continuously and rocketed continuously, and these uh, bunkers were getting blown up, our bunker was about three sandbags wide and four or five sandbags on the roof, which was about two or three feet. So we had a little slit. It was a triangle slit, and two of them in the front of the bunker, and that's what you would fire out of, the window. Was this another situation like hardcore where you're thinking, we're not going to make it out of this? Uh, actually, yes, uh, I did afterwards, but at the time, you, uh, all I'm thinking of is I got to keep firing, I got to keep firing, I got to I gotta get them. Luckily, I had the gas mask on, and my 60 blew up. Bill had turned cherry red. We had because it's constantly being firing, fired. so it heats up. Uh, so, I mean, it was bright cherry red, and we had water. We poured that on the barrel, uh, kept cooling it down, and eventually, though, it turned white hot. And it just started cooking the rounds off and finally triple fed and blew up in my face. Were you hurt? Actually, I was. Luckily, since I had the gas mask on, the gunpowder totally covered the gas mask. And my arm, my right arm, what I I used for firing, was jet black from gunpowder being blasted into my hand and my arm. Uh, If I didn't have the gas mask on, I probably would have been blind. But I took the gas mask off and uh, tried to fix my machine gun, couldn't get it fixed. Grabbed a rifle and just kept firing. Next morning, I went up to the uh, command post to the first aid station and just said, yeah, fix me up. Were you ever wounded? I do have a Purple Heart. This time, when I got uh, the machine gun blew up on me, the medic wanted to know, did I want a Purple Heart? I said, no. I said, I'm okay, just clean me up. Uh, you know, Purple Hearts are for someone that gets seriously injured. But my second tour, I got a Purple Heart. I was in recon my second tour with the 101st Airborne, and uh, we had gotten mortared really bad after we were inserted, our team was inserted. I took sh- we all took shrapnel. Only uh, a team leader got seriously injured. I had to medevac him out. The rest of us just got kind of uh, rained on. It barely broke the skin. Uh, but I reported it all in on the radio. Didn't think nothing of it. And uh, later on, when I left my, my second tour, they gave me a Purple Heart. I didn't even know I got it. <laughs> was like, What's this for? <laughs> Let me back up to the end mm-hmm. of your first tour. Yes. You come out of this in constant combat. Yes. And the Army says it's time for you to go home. Yes. As uh, a matter of fact, uh, we were in a uh, firefight. And I was really short at the time. I was only a couple of days, about three or four days from uh, my MOS, uh, from being able to go home. Finally, a resupply ship came in and they said, go, get on. Well, we had just finished a firefight that day. That day. So I jumped on. And uh, within 72 hours, I was on a plane going home. And when you land at O'Hare, you're back in civilization. Yes. And it's so, it's so far away from what you were experiencing 72 hours earlier, where you're yeah. getting shot at. Yes. How, how, how did that, how, how do you, I, I read one thing you said that really struck me was, 
you can be trained to become a warrior, but you're not trained to re-enter civilian life yes. when you come home. You, you know, you're brainwashed in becoming a warrior. That's how you survive, actually. You become a team, a teamwork, uh, and you, that's how you, you survive in the military. But they don't train you how to leave that behind. It becomes such a part of you uh, when you come back to civilian life, uh, especially in uh, Vietnam, uh, so many of our, my brothers were in fi firefights one day, next day they were home. How do you s separate that? And that was you? And that was me. And it's like I was home on my leave and uh, any kind of noise, I, I would be laying on the couch and i end up on the floor. Or uh, my mother would come running into the front room to wake me up because I'd be screaming or hollering, you know, get down or something, or look out, incoming, or something of that nature. And it's like, what do you do? It's like you just landed in a uh, whole alien uh, universe. It's totally I imagine different. your mom did not have an easy time with that, did you, she? No. Uh, when I left, you remember, got to remember, I was a boy that was still wide-eyed, innocent, wanted to become a priest at one time. And I came back, I was a warrior, hardcore, seen that too many times. That uh, little kid was long gone. He died a long time ago. And I was only 18 years old. And I felt like I was about 80. Did your mom understand all that you'd been through? No. There's no way a human being who's not experienced that can understand it, I, I imagine. Exactly. And at the very beginning, when you're first over there, you start to write home about some of the happenings. And then it, it hits to you that you're making them worry, so you no longer tell them what's going on in your life at Vietnam. You said, well, we're at this place, and well, we're climbing these hills, but you never put in what actually action you go through, because you want your families worrying. So they have no clue. And when you come home, you have no one to talk to. I got turned down for a few jobs because I was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, actually, in uh, McDonald's, one guy said, no, we don't want you. Uh, did, he, did he say why? Because uh, I was a, a Vietnam veteran. He told you that? Oh, yeah. And so how did you react to that? I just total stared at him and just turned around and walked out. I didn't say anything. But no no rationale beyond the fact that I, you were a Vietnam veteran. Yeah, I was a baby killer. Any little thing that happened to us got amplified many times over, and that's how we were known. We were just killers. Everybody stayed away from us. You still had Army time to do, or did you re-up? When I came back from Vietnam the first time, I went to El Paso, Texas. I became an instructor on the rifle range for basic trainees. And we only worked four hours a day, but I was a very heavy drinker. We all were. There was 18 of us from Vietnam. We all hung together. We were alcoholics. One day, uh, I didn't have to be on the rifle range till like late in the afternoon, so me and the sergeant went to a bar at 9 a.m. drinking Boilermakers. I was 18. And uh, he says, okay, I'm going to stay here. Tell him I don't feel good. You, you drive back. I said, well, I don't have a license. He says, that's okay. You can do it. Well, as drunk as I was, I said, okay. So I got in the car and drove back. Well, I was driving, a, I had borrowed a Mustang. 
a 68 Mustang, and I wanted to see a 289 high performance. I wanted to see what this thing you could do. You wanted to test the car out. And I did on a hard pack sand road and lost control and got in an accident. And the military had nine charges against me. But they said if I re-enlisted, they'd drop all the charges. Oh, you were <laughs> you were captured. I was ca- they got me. So I, I re-enlisted. So I, uh, for, so I was in for a total of six years. After that experience, then you go to Germany. Yes. Uh, I was getting in too much trouble at uh, El Paso, Texas. So I volunteered to go to Germany. I always seemed to get with the guys that loved to have a good time and party in Germany, too, and became very good friends with a German first sergeant in a Panther division. And he showed us all the spots that the normal GIs don't see. I, I think I was drunk the whole year I was in Germany. And but your larger experience was one where you, in Vietnam, you had a an informality. Yes. And you didn't have to dress up and your shirts didn't have to be starched. When you get to Germany and you're on garrison duty, you got to be, your shoes are spit shine. You got everything. Oh, is, uh, and and, and that, that wasn't cool with you. No, no. Uh, when you're in Vietnam uh, in combat, no one cared if your pants were clean or dirty because you only took a shower, a bath, maybe once every three or four weeks. And a lot of times it was only if you happened to come across a river and had to cross it. It's the only time you got clean. And your clothes were, you wore your clothes so they literally fell off of you. And that's the only time you got replacements. And you come back to the States, in Germany, everything had to be spit-shined. I mean, my uniforms uh, had to be so starched. I had to put my arms through the pants leg just to open them up so I can get them on. And, it, I mean, it was hard. But you decide that this is definitely not for me. Yes. And this is this leads to your decision to go back to Vietnam for yes. another tour. Uh, I was starting to get in trouble again in Germany. I said, okay, I feel more comfortable back in Vietnam. So I volunteered to go back to Vietnam a second time. Do you think your mates would have said to you, Ed, you are crazy to want to go back a second time? Yeah, yeah actually some did. People actually thought I was. But I found uh, when I went back, a lot of Vietnam veterans, their state was still in the military, volunteered to go back. They all felt like I did. They felt uh, comfortable, more alive in combat than they did uh, in civilian life and uh, in the States or in uh, Germany. And I presume a lot of them, like you, could not readjust to civilian life and found greater comfort and camaraderie and being in a combat situation. That's correct. They, a lot of us did. I mean, you was you never felt so close to individuals or so alive as you did in Vietnam. I did in Vietnam. I mean, uh, even to this day, even with my own family now, those, uh, my brothers from over there, I felt still closer than I could ever to anybody else in my whole life. Right. Your second tour involved more combat but not to the extent that your first tour did. Do I understand that correctly? That's correct. Uh, the second time, I uh, ended up being assigned to 101st Airborne, and uh, uh, I became good friends with one of the guys over there. He talked me into joining, uh, volunteering for recon. So I volunteered for recon. We were very small units. Actually, the smallest I went to the field with was six men. You'd be dropped out there in the middle of nowhere. Our job was mainly reconnaissance. 
but occasionally uh, we'd go out there with maybe uh, nine or ten men as uh, ambush teams or a hundred killer teams. One time I remember we were uh, ambushed and we were running and we ran up a mountain and I had a 120 pound rucksack on that mountain and I was running up a mountain and I was moving. <laughs> so it's like I didn't have nothing on my back. So when you're scared, you can move. <laughs> Imagine so. When you came home from your second tour, then how did you readjust the second time? Once I got out, I went back to Chicago and I went to bars every night. I mean, I, I help open them up, I help close them down. Uh, I got a job in a factory, in a plastics factory, working the uh, ejection molding machines and that. Uh, eventually I became a maintenance man. I got into the maintenance uh, system and I really enjoyed fixing things. I, I enjoyed it because it kind of helped me keep the adrenaline junkie. And maybe that helped me stop drinking as much as I used to. Being in maintenance, you got to do a lot of dangerous jobs, working at high voltage, working high up and that. And I always did all those kind of jobs. That was my job. If the job was too dangerous and no one wanted to do it, I volunteered for it. So with a lot of veterans who experience combat, mm -hmm. difficult situations, years pass before they fully realize the impact that that combat has had on their psyche. And you didn't know you had PTSD until much later in your life. Actually, I was in my early 50s. I was talking to a vet. Uh, he says, you know, he had just come from hospital uh, for his uh, PTSD. And he says, Ed, you know, I've known you long enough. You have PTSD. He says, what's that? Well, you post-traumatic stress disorder. I said, from Vietnam. And he says, you have, what, what, some of you, what do you do when you go into a restaurant? Where do you sit? I says, well, I sit uh, with my back to the wall, watching the floor all the time. He says, do you walk down the street? Do you look around all the time? I says, yeah, I always look behind me constantly. He says, you have PTSD. So I says, he says, come on, let's go. And I got examined, and sure as heck, I had PTSD. And he said, I had a, I had a pretty good dose of it, uh, but they only diagnosed me 30% disabled because I was still functional. I could work, I could hold a job, you know, everything. So, Are you still at 30%? Yeah, I'll be 30% for the rest of my life, yeah. Do you still have dreams? Do you still have Not moments? as often as I used to, but I, I actually, believe it or not, think of Vietnam almost daily. Even now, I'm 70, 73 years old. It's such so vivid in my mind that I, I, it's like I was there yesterday. There's a lot of movies I cannot watch. Shows like Hamburger uh, Hill, uh, Hamburger Hill, uh, We Were Soldiers, Platoon, those those trigger those uh, have a lot of triggers for me. Uh, I watch them uh, uh, only to the point uh, I watch them to kind of condition myself is what it is. It's part of my treatment, the grounding treatment. Have your doctors recommended to you that you talk about it? That it's cleansing in a way. Uh, yes, but unfortunately, there's no one to talk to. Uh, I went through therapy uh, first time for about two and a half years, every uh, twice a week for two and a half years. I uh, was then uh, they said, okay, uh, that's enough for now. And about three years, four years later, I went back again for another two years of therapy. And they all said, well, you got to talk to people. There's no one to talk to.
Someone will ask you uh, to describe your experiences in Vietnam and you start talking to them, they either don't believe you or you see there's a glaze comes over their eyes like they're not really listening to you. So you just kind of give up. Even, a, even if they are listening, yeah, intently, they may not, there's no way they can understand. The only, and it's not necessarily just a Vietnam vet, any veteran, it doesn't matter what war or conflict or whatever they call it. If you were in any kind of combat, then they would understand. And those are the only people you could ever talk to. It doesn't matter what war it is. The only difference is the, where it's at. Are you still undergoing therapy? Uh, no, no, I haven't gone for the last uh, 10 years. Uh, I've been, I've taken what they've taught me, a grounding. I, I know what to do if uh, it starts to get to me. Uh, I'll go out into the backyard, I'll sit there. I've got a nice backyard, I'll watch the birds or nature. Or I'll, like uh, the house here, I'm remodeling a little room at a time, I'm painting and things of that nature. So I'll get busy. So you know the triggers when they hit. Yes. And you know that you have to take certain action Yes. To negate the effect of the triggers. Uh, and uh, actually, that's what became, I became a workaholic because of that. And that's how I kind of uh, control those triggers is I'm a workaholic. And, and you spent a lot of years working for Granger. Then you worked for Lake Forest College yes. maintenance. Uh, yeah, I worked uh, Gran uh, Granger off and on for 23 years. And then I retired uh, from Lake Forest College, assistant director of facilities, after 14 years, almost 14 years there. You have such a vivid recollection. I mean, you're telling me all these details of what you went through. So mm -hmm. they're, they're, I can tell, they're really fresh. They're still there. Oh, yes. And when they percolate, I mean, does it help when you talk about it? Uh, yes, a little bit, uh, but not a lot. Yeah, it, it helps a little bit to get it out in the open to deal with it, but then you bury it again. I guess I'd like to know, what do you want people who are not familiar with roles in combat, certainly Vietnam, to know about your service? We were not baby killers. Uh, we were, you know, we're not the savages that we were made out to be. We were just uh, people that were put in difficult situations and, coped, and did our best to cope with the situation. There's a dark side in me. I call it, believe it or not, it's like a light and dark side. You walk the line. You could easily fall into that dark side and let that monster out. Combat creates a monster inside you that where you lost your humanity. And that's the only way you could, could survive. But you have to bury that monster when you become a civilian. And you do everything you can to keep that monster buried. Those triggers could bring that monster out. That's why I quit drinking as much as I ever did. Occasionally I have a beer, but I quit drinking because I became vicious when I got drunk sometimes. I became mean, I didn't like that. So I buried Which that Which is totally contrary to your character, I'm guessing, right? Yes. You're an easygoing guy? Well, uh, kind of easygoing guy, but more of trying to make up for everything I did in combat. And in combat, you do things that are contrary to humanity. I'm trying to uh, do penance for what my past. Mm -hmm. So when my time comes, 
at least I might end up in purgatory instead of hell. <laughs> I don't know about heaven. I think that's pushing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going for purgatory. <laughs> Well, you went on the uh, on honor flight. Yes. What was your honor flight experience like? It was at the beginning a lot of anxiety. The anxiety was seeing the wall, the scope of the wall. I seen the traveling wall, and I broke down with seeing the traveling wall. But the anxiety of seeing the actual wall, the size, because the size you can actually tell how many names are on it. Just being able to see that wall and being able to cope with that. That was, that was actually, that was the number one on my bucket list. I wanted to be able to see it and be able to pay my respects. When you walked up to the wall, how did you deal with it? I walked very slowly. I knelt down and said prayers and I did break down and cry a little bit. It was so overwhelming. I was worried about that portion of it. Did you lose your anxiety then after you were there at the wall? I, I didn't lose it. But it helped cope more, more of the coping. It helped with my PTSD to be able to deal with that. It also helped seeing other veterans there with me at the same time. So, uh, yes, it helped a lot. That's the therapeutic part, being with yes. other veterans, isn't it? And, and that's why I wanted to go, the therapeutic. I had to see that wall. I had to see those names. Does that help with closure? No. No. There'll never be closure. To the time I take my last breath, I'll be, it'll be there for me. I, I throw myself into my family. That's how I cope with it, in my job, part of my penance. I, I throw all my devotion that I had for my brothers in Vietnam to my family. No matter what, I take care of my family. Family is everything. When uh, everything goes to shit for you and you got nowhere else to go, you got family. I'm glad you have that. Yes. I believe we're all here for a reason. We all uh, we just don't know what that reason is. Uh, we have a destiny. Some people know what their destiny is or know it when they get to it. And a lot of us, just it's a never-ending journey. And that's what I go for. I keep myself going knowing that I'm here for a destiny. That's the only reason I could have survived. God had another reason for me. Take care of family or whatever. I wish you the best continuation of your journey with uh, your family. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. And if you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.